Thanks again for joining me, Alistair. Uh, in this next conversation, I want to reflect on something that a lot of people have brought up about uh, this coronavirus crisis, which is, um, you know, and in, in, in relation to the question of, uh, of protesting against some of the measures that have been taken, or at least worrying about the measures that are being taken, and saying we, we need to think in terms of trade-offs. This is not just a not just a public health catastrophe. This is um, this is an economic catastrophe, and an economic catastrophe is a public health catastrophe because people who lose their jobs and fall into poverty are, are going to fall ill. People who are who are shut up at home are going to become suicidal. And so many have been, you know, trotting out this line that you know we can't let the, the cure be worse than the disease, and um, saying if the if the cure here is shutting everything down, that seems to be doing more harm than the disease itself is doing. Um, so is this an appropriate way of, of, fra- of, of framing the, the dilemma? First of all, life and economy are not separate categories. They're bound up together. And if people are having to be hospitalized at a rate that exceeds the hospital's ability to cope, then the economy is not going to go on as normal. In the same way, if there's a pandemic going around, people are not going to go to the cinema. They're not going to go to um, crowded rock concerts or something like that. This is just something that's going to close down. In mm-hmm. the same way, restaurants are going to be hit. The, um, the hospitality and all these other places where there would be an encounter with a large number of people, people are not as decisions themselves, even if there is no official shutdown. It's one of the things that you see in Sweden at the moment. There isn't the same lockdown as there is elsewhere, but people are voting with their feet and they're deciding we are not going to go to the cinema. We are not going to go to the restaurant. We are not going to go to the um, football match, whatever it is, that, because we know that there's a, there's a virus going around and it's a very dangerous place to catch it. And so as a result... The economy is shutting down anyway. It's not as if this is um, the government not taking action will lead to nothing changing. Right. Because there are three different parties. You have right. to deal with the people who are providing the services. You have to deal with the customers and you have to deal with the government. And the government, if it doesn't take action, the people who are the customers will often take action or even the companies themselves. The companies don't want to put, in many right. cases, their employees at risk, or they'll find if you've got this thing running through the population, you will lose two weeks of um, anyone who gets sick. You'll lose two weeks of their labor, perhaps, and it will hit at a certain time. That's going to make a big impact. And there's going to be a radical shift in demand for different products. Mm -hmm, We're mm -hmm. seeing that already. People are not wanting to engage in luxury buying at a time like this. And so the economy changes anyway. The question is how to weigh up the different um, concerns and think about the different possible outcomes and how we can minimize the damage that it causes on all these different fronts. Now, it's clearly the case. Just just to to jump in there, just two examples, I think, to kind of add weight to what you're saying. Um, You know, there there was some interesting data that came out, you know, in in mid-March around the time when the U.S. was just um, starting to shut down, but, but pretty much before any there were required shutdowns in most places, tracking restaurant um, reservation data. And in many places, um, you know, the order to close all restaurants came as sort of a, you know, just a formalizing of what was already effectively the case. 
in areas where the outbreak had already taken hold, people would stop going to restaurants anyway. Um, and, and, and similarly, you know, in one, there's been some stories recently, you know, one state in the U S that doesn't have a stay at home order, um, South Dakota is now facing at least a localized outbreak around a massive, um, Smithfield, uh, food processing plant. And this is considered, even if they did have a stay at home order, this would be considered essential work. And they've had to shut the, the plant down and there's risk of disruption to the food supply because people are getting sick at work. And so, um, it, some people seem to view this as if, you know, the government took the decision to, you know, the government sacrificed their economy on the altar of public health. Um, but, you know, as, as you're noting, the, 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 the damage to the economy cannot be avoided so long as the public health issue is really a major issue. Um, and so it's it's just a question of, of how to manage the sort of the timetable of it, really. It's, it's not a question of, of whether, but but when and where. And it's interesting to see how much economists are on board with this. This isn't something that they're opposing in general. This is generally, they're saying for the sake of the economy itself, we need to take these sorts of actions. Now, there are considerations of how you can minimize the impact on different realms of, of life and thinking about some sort of graduated return to normal, or at least some degree of normalcy. And there's also the consideration, I think this is one of the things that makes it really hard. When we're thinking about trade-offs, we're not thinking about, I'm trading off this for that, in terms of, I'm trading off my economic well-being for my health. No, it tends to be that the costs and the benefits are distributed differently across the population. And so the benefits are found for particular populations and the other, other parts of the populations are bearing the lion's portion of the cost. And that, I think, is where we see some of the concerns coming in. Because, again, it's an issue of skin in the game. If you have a job where you're losing all your employment, mm -hmm. you're losing your sense of agency and your ability to do things, then you're really feeling the cost. And particularly if you're a young person who feels, I'm happy to take the, the hit, I'm happy to get coronavirus and take the risk, and it's a reasonable risk to take even perhaps in your position. That feels like a very different cost-benefit analysis than for someone, for instance, in my position, where most of my work goes on unchanged. Right. And so in a position of um, the same skin in the game in question as someone else who's loose losing their job and those sorts of questions i think give the trade-off issues a bit more of their keenness um, because people feel for instance why should the younger generations be sacrificing for boomers after all mm. the things that they've done to us and we don't <laughs> feel that they've left anything for us why should we sacrifice yeah. for them they we've taken the hits right, of their, right, right. Um, economic right. malpractice and this sort of thing yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, something we're going to talk about in a later video is the break, breakdown of trust. And I, I think that's something not to be underestimated is how much what we're facing here is a, a breakdown of trust and, and sense of obligation and gratitude between generations, because this this really does pose a sort of inter, you know intergenerational conflict of interests. I think that's been overstated because I think that the data show that the risk to young people is is still quite significant. Um, you know, the risk of death may be relatively low, but that's, that's assuming that, you know, you can get access to intensive care. If, 
if the hospital is generally overwhelmed, the young are going to die in larger numbers. And as we know, it causes, you know, long-term damage as well. Um, so I think that the intergenerational conflict of interest has been overstated, but yet it is true that to disproportionately the younger working generations, the partying generations, the beach tripping generations are being forced to sacrifice on behalf of the elderly. And we can say, well, why, why, you know, let's just let them stay home. And the rest of us go about life as usual. Um, and I think that's a, you know, it's an important test of how much can we still conjure up uh, an older biblical understanding of what, you know, honoring the hoary head looks like. Um, and I think trying to lock them away for 18 months and say, you know, fend for yourselves and don't get sick is probably not what that looks like. I think we're seeing the same thing along regional lines and also between classes and mm. that the costs of this are not born in the same proportion across different classes and certain regions require far more extensive measures which have implications for everywhere else than others do so the measures that are needed for new york will have implications for other parts of the u.s mm -hmm. yeah yeah i think many people are saying let's just let's just treat this you know on a locality by locality basis um and i think there's there's something to that for sure um, especially as we get more data, more testing, and we can actually differentiate between high risk and low risk areas. But part of the problem is that, you know, that one of the issues, you know, a whole other conversation is, you know, what this is exposed about globalization and interconnectedness. And, um, we don't, we do not live in a world anymore where localities can be neatly separated off. If, if you, if you want to treat New York city differently, then you're going to have to have closed down all the roads leading away from New York city and, police all those checkpoints because people can people can and do easily move around and if they're gonna if there's a one area that's not under restrictions and another area that is people are going to look for every opportunity to go on day trips and vacations and so on um and so we really do live in a very interconnected and that's again, much more the case in the uk i mean a small geographic area but even in the u.s um we're much more interconnected than we than we really have yet recognized. Um, and I think um, this is a, an interesting moment where in many ways the, the, here in America, our consciousness of ourselves as one nation has been seriously fraying in recent decades. Um, and regional differences have been very much accentuated. And you see that actually behind some of the rhetoric here, you know, it's a, more rural areas, more red state areas are saying, well, this is, a, this is an urban problem. This is a blue state problem. Treat them differently, but let us do our thing. And um, I think we, we, it's a, we have to realize we are, for better or for worse, still very interconnected, and we have to tackle this problem um, as a nation at a time when we no longer feel like we're part of the same nation. I think that that's, I think those emotional tensions um, behind the, the divisions that have emerged in American politics and the regionalism is, is part of what has made this such a fraught issue. I think also the other aspect of trade-off that's taken, we're limiting the economy ourselves. We're placing all these constraints upon our mobility, things like that, and the, of the disease of the virus itself. 
And that sort of trade-off depends upon a recognition of what you are trading off. And that's one of the problems where if you respond, as we've discussed earlier, if you respond effectively, it feels like you've taken an incredible cost for very little benefit. Um, that I mean, it was only a small thing that we hit. So why did we go to all these measures? And so some sense of the proportion of the cost to the, um, the benefits that we get in the avoidance of the, the results of the virus. Mm-hmm. I think that seems to be required for us to understand the trade-offs well. And many people, as they struggle to understand exactly how we have a sense of the threat and the proportion of or the, the scale of the problem in terms of the virus, they find it very difficult to understand why we would take such extreme measures. And so that trade-off, I think, requires a sense of knowledge and information that many people lack. Mm. Um, so it exacerbates the problem in that particular direction. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that's what we're going to discuss in the next video is this knowledge problem. I think that's underlying everything else. Just a final note under trade-offs, just to, just to sort of highlight it. I think, I think the bigger trade-off that we really will be having to face and grapple with and that I want Christians to be thinking and talking intelligently about is um, on the subject of surveillance. I think many people, some people have said this sort of, you know, the government is, this is an opportunity for the government to expand its power, shutting businesses down, shutting churches down, you know, who knows, it's going to use that power all the time now. I don't think the government has any incentive or motivation to shut down businesses. Sometimes, you know, maybe particularly, you know, um, particular settings, possibly it's motivation to want to shut down churches. But in general, these kind of dramatic steps are not the sort of things that I think are going to be repeated after the emergency has passed. But where there is a motive for the government to overreach and to continue overreaching is, I think, in the area of surveillance, because surveillance is once you establish surveillance, um, surveillance is a very unobtrusive way to manage population to 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 keep control of things without making people feel uh, meddled with so much. Because once you, people get normalized to surveillance, people, people don't get normalized to you know being required to stay at home or to restaurants being closed. But people can get normalized to the idea of their movements being tracked all the time. Um, and we see that, we, we've seen that in the last 10 years. We've, we've in many ways become very normalized to widespread surveillance. And it, it kind of looks like the easiest way out of this crisis is implementing the kinds of measures that, you know, that China has done that, you know, that Google and Apple are talking about doing and in terms of, you know, um, what we talk about in terms of antibody tests, you know, these ideas of finding out who is immune. If you're sort of immune, you've got a, you've got a green light, you can go be normal. Or if you're not immune, but we've tracked you very carefully and we know you haven't come in contact with anyone, you know, you've got a, you've got a yellow light, you know, and if, 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 if our data shows that you've been in potential contact, you've got a red light, you've got to stay home. Um, and from one standpoint, this, this seems like a, it's the easiest path back to, you know, progressive normalcy. On the other hand, um, is it at too great a cost? Because I do think that is the sort of thing that the sort of powers that might not be readily given up after the immediate crisis is passed. I think that concern is a very reasonable one. But again, we're not thinking in terms of absolute one or the other. And often when we use the language of trade-offs, it can give that impression. Mm -hmm. We often are thinking about 
incremental steps or limited measures that we can take and weighing um, things against each other. And that can require a recognition of, okay, we may have to have some sort of surveillance. There are many different ways we could go about that surveillance. We could have centralized government surveillance, or we could have some sort of contact app that tracks the way that you've contacted people. And there can be some degree of um, data protection that's built into that sort of thing. Now, that is a very different approach from just saying, we just turn the surveillance switch on and everything goes on and we submit to every form right, right. of limitation. And I think that's what, when we're dealing with these sorts of policy questions, we are dealing with these sorts of questions. We're having to think, okay, we may have to sacrifice something of the well-being of society for its continued functioning on a more basic level. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. those sorts of sacrifices need to be made on occasions. But we also need to be very clear that this is not a healthy norm. This is not something that should last. Yeah. And we need to build into those measures ways to get out of them in the future and yeah. limited um, time that they apply, whatever it is. And so those questions about civil liberties are very important ones, particularly as we start to implement measures. It can be very easy to get into that emergency frame of mind where we don't actually think about, OK, how do we dismantle what we're right. Mantling. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to call, call for a great deal of wisdom and discernment on the part of our leaders and on the part of citizens. And that's, I think, what we want to tackle in the next video is, is what are the barriers to that kind of discernment in the environment that we find ourselves.